fasten your seatbelt, we're going for a ride. You're listening to Randomly Typed. I hope we're not going over the speed limit, though. Hope not. I guess we'd be <laughs> illegal. Yeah, that's not us, too. We would never do such a thing. No. We're the good guy here. We're definitely not the hackers. <laughs> we're back on the lead hacker subject. Yeah. Since we're continuing our crypto discussion from the last, uh, last episode. So what did we cover in the previous episode, JS? So let's say the history of cryptography and symmetric ciphers. Right. Oh, I want to... So last night I was finishing to edit the, the last episode and I realized that I said that the XOR cipher was an asymmetric cipher and that was a lie. It's a, obviously a symmetric cipher. Oh, I didn't hear you say that. Well, I must have, I don't know, either misheard or misunderstood or yeah, something. Yeah, you let me lie. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jess. All right, so now what's the subject this week? So we'll be continuing that discussion with asymmetric crypto systems. So what does that mean, Jess? Oh, man, already? All right, so the symmetric ones are you use the same key for encrypting and decrypting, and the asymmetric ciphers is you have different keys for encrypting and decrypting. Why would any human want to use asymmetric. All right, all right, I see where you're going with that. So the objective of asymmetric ciphers is to facilitate communication. Because for example, if I have a private key and a public key, you can use my public key, which is public, to encrypt a message for me. And since I have the only private key, I'm the only one that can decrypt your message. So this is a usage of asymmetric ciphers. Yeah. Most of them are slower than symmetric because there's a lot more... Usually they rely on some kind of trick for it to be hard to compute in some areas or like some math tricks. Um, and there's usually more kind of like back and forth. But it's great because you keep your private key. It is only for you. It is never shared with anyone. And the system is built to work like that, right? Never would you share your private key. So the classic example of asymmetric systems is that, let's say I had some super sensitive secret message I want to send to JS over an unsecure channel. Uh, what we could do is like, I have a lock I can, so I could put the message in a treasure chest and I could put my lock on the treasure chest and then send it to JS. Uh, so while it's over sent over the insecure channel, no one can open it because I'm the only one who has the key. JS can then, once he receives it, he also can't open it. So he places his lock on the treasure chest. So now that the treasure chest has two locks and then sends it back to me. And then I can unlock my lock, but leave JS's lock on there because I don't have his key and then send it back to JS. Cool. So here there was an example of asymmetric cipher here with air quotes, but using symmetric ciphers. Yes. So that's, yeah. But still like if you view the lock locks as like public keys, and keys to the locks as your actual key. Like you never right. shared your key with anyone, right, right, I right. guess, right? So here the public key would be the locked I sent you. Yeah, yes, it would be. Okay. Cool. Well, that's kind of convoluted, right? So it is convoluted. So just to extend the analogy further, locks are difficult to break if you don't have the key, right? 
Uh, you need chopper, metal chopper. Yeah, I guess it's like a big wire cutter, right? Yeah, sort of, yeah. But yeah, I know it has a name. And they're really, they have really long arms, but very small, like, chompy bits at the end <laughs> in order to break the lock if you don't have a key. So it's a lot of work. You need someone who has lots of muscles to actually break the lock. It's, like, difficult to do, right? But the alternative, if you have the key, the secret that's protected only by you, is just, like, turning it, which is a lot of easy stuff, right? Like, it's right. an easy thing to do. So that plays nicely in this, like, concept that, like, also carries over to the digital world where all of this asymmetric crypto is based on one-way functions. And like one way, not one way, but like like trapdoor functions. So they're usually super easy to encrypt things with because you have information that other people do not. And other people without that key or that information, it's very difficult for them to decrypt because of some mathematical property or some reason. Okay. Like, Without prior knowledge, it's super difficult to do. JS, I am going to name a number. Okay. I'm going to tell you right now, up front, that this number only has two factors. <laughs> so you're trying... So I need to factorize a number in my head. Yes. They nice. have two factors. They're both primes. Okay. You have five seconds to do it. Okay. Are you ready? No. The number is 341. <laughs> five, four, three, two... <laughs> One. So that was really hard to do, right? That was extremely difficult. And what's the answer? I would be super surprised. Well, I won't tell you the answer just yet, actually. Okay, we'll look at uh, that. I'd be super stuff. surprised if you did that on the spot. I'd be like, I would think you're an absolute genius. Not that you aren't, and I do know you are a genius, but even more so. So let's do it again. Okay. You'll have five or ten seconds. Okay. Is the problem suddenly easier now that I tell you that one of the factors is 11? No, because my men mental math are super bad. But if I had the calculator, the answer would be yes. Okay, so yeah, you would know exactly what to yes. do, right? I would take a number divided by 11. Yeah, so 341 divided by 11. I actually don't even have the answer here. But it would be... 330... Uh, it would be 31. Yes. 31 maybe. times 11 is 341. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm the one who wrote this down. I can't believe I didn't, <laughs> I didn't finish the actual problem. Um, so RSA is not exactly this, uh, but it's a scheme for asymmetric, uh, asymmetric cryptography. Uh, and it was developed by Rivest, Shamir, and Adelman, three brilliant people, I imagine, in 1977. Oh, that's old? I mean, it's not that old when you think well, about it. Like, in computer science. It's in old. computer science terms, it's old. But like before then, asymmetric crypto basically didn't exist. This was like one of the first one okay. of the first asymmetric cryptography algorithms, and it relies on that problem, prime factorization, and that like it's difficult to do. It's an NP problem, actually. We talked about <laughs> NP problems on a previous episode, but this is like an NP class of problem where finding two prime factors or just prime factorization generally. Uh, is very difficult to do for right. a, per, a given number. Cool. Uh, so, so how does it work? Pr prime factorization? No, I mean... Factorization. <laughs> <laughs> factorization. Okay, yeah. So we're going to go through an example of encrypting a message and decrypting a message with RSA in an audio format. So it might be rocky. It might be rocky. I'm actually generating... I'm, I'm going to give a public key and private key already. Can it be like three and five? Uh, we'll see, but they're really low, yeah. 
Um, in, re in practice, they would be much, much, much larger prime okay. numbers. Um, the bigger, the better. Okay, but okay, sure. But in real life, what do we use? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea, but they're big numbers. Okay. If you want to go through the exercise of actually generating these keys, the math behind it is awesome and like miraculous that it works. It's very, very cool how it works. Um, but you have to go through like, there's like the phi, Euler's phi function, I think, which I is crazy. And like, it's a way to know how many uh, numbers are co-prime with the number that you've specifically chosen. Um, okay, but here is your key just a prime number or is it derived from the prime number? Um, so it is derived actually. Okay. It isn't just the prime number. Uh, let's go through an example maybe. Is it? So again, we're not going to generate the keys. We're going to assume you already have them. But this is an example of encrypting and decrypting something. So JS, I have a super secret message to send to you. Right. What's your message? It's the number two. All right, all right. Is that meaningful to you? Uh, no. Not at all? Not at all. Oh, I thought you would like this number two. I was sending it to you in secret, just in case. I prefer three, but hey, if you go for two. Okay, well, let's stick to two. Our secret, nobody else should know. So RSA works by using public keys and private keys. I need to send this message to, to JS so, so that only JS can decrypt this. So this means that the key we described earlier, so the public key n equal 14 and e equal 5, this is my public key, and the private key of d equal 11 is also mine, but I'm the only one that knows it. You're yes. Not, you're not aware of it. Exactly. So after we encrypted to uh, with your public key, which is E and N. Sure. Um, e, uh, we ended up with four to be sent to you. Could we do the math? Yeah, sure. Okay, your public key is N is 14, and E, which is a number derived from the two random primes <laughs> you originally had, which is five. So I'd be like, okay, the super secret message too. What you need to do is raise it to the five so raise it to the E, okay. which happens to be five in this case. And so that's 32 and then mod 14, which is N. Okay. Uh, so we end up with a message four. So this is a message that only, so, I mean, we could do the back and forth, but this is a message encrypted with JS's public key and only JS has the private key. And so only JS is able to decrypt this right. portion of it. So even if someone else have my private key, they cannot decrypt yep. what I, the well, message. Well, I mean, only you have your private key. Right. Yeah. So only you can. Oh, sorry, I said, if someone has my public key, they cannot decrypt the message. Yeah. So, exact, precisely, right. So now what JS can do to decrypt this is he has the ciphertext four and he has his private key D, which is 11, also generated from the two primes we randomly generated originally. Four. If, again, you raise it to the 11, which is a real stupidly big number, uh, well, it's like 4,194,304. Wow. All of this mod 14, you end up with 2 again. That's not happenstance. Wow. There's like magical properties. And that's why, I mean, go read how these keys are generated because it's the coolest thing, but I would never dare to try and explain it on an audio podcast. So you end up with 2 again. It's not happenstance. This happens predictably all the time. If you do message to the E times D, mm -hmm. 
mod n, you'll always get that original message back. And the intermediate states are like jarbled mess. Nice. So that's like a general super high level description of the mechanics of RSA, so how it would work in the encrypting and decrypting scenario. So we've been using that for like 50 years or something like that? Yeah, it's still used today. Wow, okay. And it seems so simple. Yeah, it, it is super simple. It's just really clever math based on the fact that it's hard to just guess what number that D would be based on every other input. Like we don't have a solution to it that, a fast solution to it that doesn't require knowing the number in advance. So the solution is like to brute force every possibilities, right? Which if practically, if which practically, if your prime numbers are big enough, is not feasible. Right. So this is encrypting and decrypting. There's also signing as a concept in cryptography. Right. What's the what's the goal? So signing. Well, in real life, you sign documents to like say, I, as a person on this planet, recognize and approve of this document, right? Like if you're signing the deed to your house or something, you say like, I am buying this house and it's your signature, so it can't be like spoofed. Right, so in the last episode, we talked about non-repudiation. Is it the goal of uh, signing to give that? Yeah, in some sense, yeah. Yeah, it is actually. It is a signature of yours that no if done properly, can't be forged. Right, you're the only one that can produce that. The thing is that in real life, it's really easy to just sign a document. Mm -hmm. In practice, you, people can just copy other people's digital right. files and be like, oh, hey, look, like this is like JS had this, but now I have this. Right, but that's not the objective, right? Where I often see this is when I update, let's say, my Linux kernel, it receives a signature from the person who produced the kernel. So I know that even if someone else copied it, the original source was from that person. So that's because they use a digital signing scheme that you can do that. But like people have to come up with this scheme to provide some facsimile of this kind of guarantee that you have in the physical world. Right. And it doesn't work exactly the same because in the digital world, you can just like copy someone else's yeah. whatever it is in order to make it seem official. Well, right. to be fair, in the real world, you can fake pretty much any signature really easily. So we just trust it because we trust it. Yeah, so that's that's a fair point, although it's hard to do like perfect forgeries, right? Right, right? But still. So how this works is actually I when I found how this worked, I was like pretty blown away. But like you can do RSA signing and how okay. it works, it's actually the opposite of uh, the exact opposite of encrypting and decrypting. What you do is you sign with your private key, and then others can verify that you signed it with your public key. Oh. So here, does that mean that the private key and the public key is pretty much interchangeable? So the end result, since you're doing both exponentiation yeah, exactly. and you're modding, you will get the same end result. But the intermediate state will vary depending on whether you like use your private key mm -hmm. or your public key first. So let's say I produce a pair of private and public key. Could I switch them both and it would still work? So could I share my private key and keep my public key? So you totally could, although you shouldn't because, well, I mean, because presumably your public key was public at some point. But let's say it was not. I just produced them. 
So theoretically, you can. Okay. I don't know if there are like practical limitations to doing so. Okay. And this is only specifically for RSA. Right. I don't know much about any other, uh, like what limitations, like I don't know, GPG has or something. Sure. Um, but yeah, so in RSA's case, like it'll work either way. It's just you'd have to designate one of them as being public, and the other one you never share. Okay. But what's cool about signing is that like UJS, you can sign document and produce a result that other people can verify it was you because that signed have, it. Because they have my public key. But they never had access to your private key to begin with. So it's like you had some special goal, special magical pen, which was yours and recognizably yours, which in the real world would be like your hand movements on your signature okay. that nobody else, nobody else can copy because nobody else has, but everyone else can verify that it is yours, right? So we can go through the same example again as we did previously, but do it with the like signing and verification mm -hmm. this time. So the document that JS wants to sign is the message to. Uh, it's a fantastic document, great so, document. So this means that I want to say that I'm the one that produced the number two. Yes. So you would sign it with your private key, which is D, which is 11. Uh, and so what you do is two power of 11, which is 2048, like the amazing game that was all the rage a few years back. Oh, I loved it. Uh, and then you could mod 14, which is N, and that gives four. This is also by happenstance that it just happens to be the same one as the previous one, but it could be whatever. Okay. And you can, so what's cool is that JS never shared his private key with anyone in producing the ciphertext. Uh, and then as the verifier, I can go get JS's public key, which is E, which is five, uh, do four to the five, which is 1024, and mod 14, which is two. Right. So we end up seeing that like, okay, yes, JS, JS's ciphertext, which he signed, gives the same result as the document you had in the end. But here we have a problem, right? Let's say the message was bigger than two. The signature would be as big as the document itself. So right. if we, I go back to my Linux kernel example, so your signature would be like, let's say 10 megabytes more than the download itself, just to prove it's the right download. You are absolutely right. So what you can do in this case is to use a hash, a cryptographic hash. So what that is, it's a one-way function from your original, which produces a smaller value with very, very low probability of collision. That's where cryptic, cryptographic hashes are different from non-cryptographic hashes in that they very, very much care about there not being collisions and that there's a random distribution. Whereas I think we talked about hash functions in a previous episode, but didn't use them in a cryptographic context, but these are like the elite hashes of the world. <laughs> They're where they like actually work reasonably well. So what you could do is you have a giant document, generate a hash for it, uh, so it's a much shorter message and then sign that right and then you could publicize that like hey this document if you hash it you'll end up with the same results with the ciphertext after verification um, so this also helps with like forgery too because if i chose let me see if i could get this right if i chose a message that was nonsense and then i was able to show that using JS's public key produced a message, like could verifiably make a message, then it could seem as though JS approved. We could verify that JS approved of something that he did not. 
But with the hash, it adds that layer of like, well, if you hash the document that the message, you wouldn't end up with the same result. Right. And since the, their goal of a good hash is to reduce the collisions, you have a really low chance of being able yeah. to create a document which is not the original yeah. one that produces the same hash. And in addition, in the real world, they add something called padding to these messages. And so this is that an attacker couldn't possibly guess like the patterns in a message. So what you would do by padding the message, you could add like a bunch of extra bytes that are like meaningless at the beginning or at the end or in the middle somewhere predictably, and then hash that and then uh, sign that. And, and so what that does is make it so that it's like if the date was always at the beginning or if you signed sincerely all the time, mm -hmm. or if your message was, if the attacker knew that your message was always of a certain length, this allows that in that if you have variable length padding, uh, disallows that, sorry, if you had different paddings all the time, then you can right. prevent that. So here we are going back to the non-plaintext attack we talked about for yeah. the in the previous episode. Yeah. People crack these messages in ingenious ways much smarter than I could think of. <laughs> yeah. So in the real world, you you never like directly sign the thing without hashing it or padding it. Like um, that's the normal way of doing it. Yeah, that's the normal way as far as I know. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's funny how like just signing, at least in this case, is literally RSA in a different order. Yeah, which gives you something totally different. Yeah, like a different usefulness, right? Mm -hmm. Just nuts. It's mind blowing. Yeah, it's really impressive. So that's all we had for today. Next episode, which will be the last of this trilogy. Well, I hope so. Because honestly, doing a fourth episode in a trilogy is kind of weird. That's true, yeah. I hope I didn't lie to all of our listeners. Oh, well, for the 10 of you, we're already sorry. <laughs> Hi, Mom! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, in the next episode, we plan on kind of wrapping all this up and being like, day to day, how do you use this secrets management, keeping secrets secret in the context of having to store it in a place and then having to access it, end-to-end -end encryption, what does this mean? It's the, the hotness these days. Right. So we plan on going through through all of that oh, and so, more. So I guess we'll be talking about Snowden. Oh, we could. We could. All right. Let's do this. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Lance, for all this... Uh, Distilled information. Yeah, oof. yeah this was this was a, a rough one. Hard yeah. to. It's definitely not my area of expertise, uh, and it's hard to go through this kind of like mathy. Yeah. Thing. Well, audio for, uh, podcast is definitely not the right uh, medium for that. <laughs> for for math, yeah. I mean, or we're just doing it wrong. <laughs> one of the two. Maybe we should do it with colors. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Hashing I, blue give you brown. Actually, you know what? As a sneak preview for the next uh, next episode, we're most likely going to talk about Diffie-Hellman. And there's this really cool color analogy with Diff Diffie-Hellman that I'll try to bring to the next episode. That is awesome. I All really right. Love it. I'm really intrigued now. So yeah, we will actually be doing encryption with colors. <laughs> that was a joke, but hey. <laughs> All right, so until next time. All right, see you next time. See ya. You can contact us and find show notes on our website, randomlytyped.com. The intro music is by Vansky. Thank you, Vansky. And thank you, listener, for indulging us.